0: visit the all-in-gospel.com website. Numbers 25, we'll pick up where we left off two weeks ago. Uh, And we are getting towards the end of of Numbers. Um, This chapter is going to be about harlotry. So, if you came tonight for the first time and that's an issue in your life, I didn't pick this topic. It's just the next chapter. Um, and then we' we'll, we'll continue on next week too. So um, at the end of chapter twenty four, Balaam and Balak are having their little spat, and Balaam gives some advice to Balak, but we don't know what the advice is. Moses chooses to leave it out because that's not the point in chapter twenty four. And when we get to this kind of next chapter where it says in verse one, it says, now, we start the next chapter. Now we kind of find out what Balaam's advice to Balak was, is, which is you're not going to beat these guys in a spiritual war, but you can get them to submit in a purity war. So get your armies and send them home, send in your harlots and start to undermine the purity of Israel. That's what's going to get God against them. And that's what's going to make it so that you can take out Israel. So we start in verse one, that's the context. Now in Israel, now Israel remained in Acacia Grove. That's a location. And the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to sacrifice of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. So for starters, in verse 3, we say Baal of Peor. Remember in the last chapter, it just said Peor, and it didn't say Baal. We didn't know the context in the last chapter, but now we do. Peor is a place of temples and of worship to the god Baal, and the women of Moab are not just good looking. They're also good at attracting the guys from Israel into, into harlotry, into these kinds of situations. Moab and Midian are going to be used interchangeably through the chapter. Uh, the reason is that the Midianites were a nomadic group, and Moab is a geographical location. So it appears to be at this point in history the Midianites were in Moab. Does that make sense? Just so people don't get confused as they switch those around. So after after a few chapters of Israel being victorious, spiritual victories, they're kicking butt and taking names and they're winning the spiritual battles as we've seen in the last 3 chapters, Israel's worst enemy is going to be the carnal pleasures of this world. This slow slouch into Gomorrah so to speak, right? So Baal is the big Canaanite god of fertility. And guess how you worship a God of fertility in the pagan world? You do things that make you more fertile. Um, So that's what they do. God is angered in that they ate and bowed down. The issue is not the sex. Notice here in verse two, the issue is that they bowed down to other gods. They did these things in the context of worship. So there's a polytheism that comes from Egypt. Yes, we believe in Yahweh, but there's these other gods that we're going to worship too. There's a compromised Israel that's going to happen. So... We know from Numbers 31 that Balaam gave the counsel for Balak to do this. And in Revelations 2.14, they, re- they reference the same thing. This action is what Balaam was told to do. So friendship with the enemy is going to be more deadly than face-to-face combat or military combat. The Acacia Grove is a watered plain that's across from Jericho. So context here, it's, when the, it's in with an eyesight of the promised land. They're that close. So the last generation got that close to the promised land and then they chickened out because they were fearful. This generation gets this close to the promised land and then they start to compromise their purity. To remain, the Hebrew, that the context there is to settle in or to make camp like they're not going to go any further. They're just done moving. And how sad is that for the people of God to think we got good enough and we're not going to pursue God any further than this. They come to a place of comfort provision. They have everything they need. And then they've got these women coming down. Notice the progression here. Paul has these kinds of progressions with sin too. Verse one, they settle down, they remain. Verse one, they begin to. Verse two, they invite. Verse three, they join with. And verse three, they bow down to. There's this progression where the people of God are having spiritual victories, but the entertaining of sin comes slowly and it gradually grows. There's a progression. Numbers 31. uh, We're going to see that there's the enemy has this agenda. They love the fact that they're corrupting Israel right now, and Balak is up on the heights watching this stuff happen and delighting in every moment of it. One of those struggles that we have with sin sometimes is we we think we're just easing into things, or we're not we're not content with where God's taking us, so we're going to let the world take us in different directions, and the end result is we just stop moving, and the enemy loves this. The people of God should never settle down. We should never get that comfortable. We've raised our kids that way. Whenever they get too attached to a home, we just move, (laughs) right? So don't get too attached. This isn't your home. Don't get comfy in this world. It's a dangerous thing to do. The enemy knows that, and I'm talking not just physically, I'm talking spiritually, right? The enemy knows that God is extremely patient with his people, and the enemy can be pretty patient with us too, and watch these things happen. Verse four, then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away Israel. Leaders there, leaders of the people is the, uh, is the word ro- Roash, or leaders or head men, those captains that we put in place. The leaders were the last probably of the older generation. So they're not moving into the Holy Land because they still have people that God said were never going to see the Holy Land. So it could be that it's all these old men that are having issues with polytheism because they would have been the same people that knew it from back in Egypt. There's this new Joshua generation. They've always been traveling with Israel where there's only one God, but these older kind of leaders of the men might still be that. They're about 10 miles away and they're still looking backwards to the idols, physically speaking. Um, So Moses said to the judges of Israel, every one of you, kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. So a clear order from God through Moses. This is a difficult one to execute people and kill people. Um, It's not going to be listened to. So we'll see in the next few verses, they don't go and kill all these people. Um, Baal of Peor is attacking Israel and God's response is stop the Israelites that have done this. He doesn't even say to kill the Moabites right? At this point, he just says to take care of these men that are doing it. They're the first ones held accountable. In Hosea 9:10, we say Baal of Peor. um, And we see this image that gets used there too. I'm going to read a passage from Hosea 9, verse 10. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree at their first time. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves unto that shame, and their abominations were according as they loved." the abominations are according to what they love. These men love what they're doing. And sin often can become really attractive, especially sick sick, sexual sin. And God doesn't list what those sins are. But these are people that were professionals that stayed up at Baal Peor, this place where people would go, kind of like Las Vegas, right? They were professionals at what they did. And and they came down and they didn't seem to have a lot of trouble doing this. In Hosea's time, it's pointed out that this is the beginning of all idolatry amongst the Israelites. This is the start of it. And they're going to struggle with Baal for the rest of their history. It's going to be this recurring theme. Um, And they're going to continue to suffer as a nation as these things happen. And their ability to hear what's going on spiritually is going to be directly based to how much they reject or accept Baal and the priests of Baal and the harlots of Baal and this stuff. So a nation can recognize this and deal with it, which is what God's asking them to do right now, take care of this, deal with it quickly and harshly and get it over with, or they're going to struggle with it forever. And they're never going to be tuned into things. And they're going to think everything's just a coincidence. And I was thinking a lot about the news that it's just getting lost right now in the news that America is extremely comfortable. We've been like that for a very long time. And then we have all these earthquakes and people are like, oh, that's just a coincidence. And then there's a locust invasion. You all know that? Oh, that's just a coincidence. It doesn't even really make the news. And then there's a plague, literally a plague in our land. Well, that's just a coincidence too. That can't have anything to do with it. It's foolish at some point when the people of God don't recognize what God's trying to say to a nation. It's foolish to not see that. At what point do people call the leaders, the leaders of the people call people to pray? But when your leaders are off fornicating, you don't have the kind of leadership you need. So God's dealing with the leaders and I think that's a big point there. By the way, I looked at the map a week ago. It wasn't just one hurricane hitting land. Do you know there were six other hurricanes out in the Atlantic? At the same time, seven hurricanes over the Atlantic? That's crazy. That would normally be top of the news cycle. Like this is a natural phenomenon that we really, I haven't seen it in my lifetime. Any of the older folks? Two. come man one item. The other. Right, there's six sitting out in the Atlantic right now. It's just absolutely nuts, but it's just a coincidence. That doesn't have anything to do with anything. Um, you know, California is burning from Northern California all the way up to Washington State. Literally, everything's burning on the West Coast. But that's just a coincidence too. It's just, you know, it just all happens to be happening at the same time. It has nothing to do with maybe God trying to tell the people of God to rise up and to speak, and to say things, or saturate, and go hang gospel tracks on people's doors. And God's looking for the people that will serve him, and he's doing the same thing here. Or perhaps, maybe, what's really happening with Israel is God's going to lift his hand of blessing from that country. And when God lifts his hand of blessing from a country, everything goes to pot. Everything does. Or his hand of blessing can come back down, and things just go well. So, verse 6, I know I'm just getting... Gary ready to talk afterwards with all this stuff. (laughs) Verse six, And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle. you got the believers crying at the door of the tabernacle. And here comes one of these head men with his Midianite woman, and he's bragging about it in the face of the tabernacle, in front of everybody, totally brazen, gutsy, in the face of God, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Who are you to tell me how to live? And I'm not going to be sexually pure. I'm going to have sex with whoever I want to. Boom. So what's going to happen? He marches right up to the thing. He's a ruling family member. And he presumes that in doing this, that he's a safe person, but he's not. Because in verse seven, now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, Eleazar's is right now the high priest, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it. He rose from among the congregation, took a javelin in his hand, and he went in after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust them both through. So not only did he brag about it in the front, he went back to his tent and started having sex with this woman. Okay, this is the ancient world and he ran a javelin right through him. The man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague stopped amongst the children of Israel. And those who died in the plague were 24,000 people. So God's hand comes back and rests on Israel as they deal with this stuff. There's an equally bold zeal for God that Phinehas shows that matches the zeal of this person in the face of Moses and the rest of the congregation. This guy rises, he takes, he went after and he thrusts. See the progression? Kind of matches the other progression. Rise, take, go after, thrust. Not worried about the feelings of the defiant people, he actually deals with this person. And this is not a call for Christians to murder people, and I'm going to explain why, because there's actually a spiritual progression. (laughs) At this point in history, God's trying to create a pure nation, and to show the world what purity looks like through a worshiping Israel that serves one God, not many gods. So he's trying to establish this pure kind of nation amongst the history of the world so we can read about Israel. So there's world history happening in this very moment that God's trying to establish. But things change as we get through the progressive revelation of God. As we get to the New Testament, the weapon that we hold is clearly defined as the word of God which I can speak the word of God at people and it doesn't thrust through them and kill them. But it is a sword, right? That's how it's defined again and again and again. I'll give you a couple of examples. Ephesians 6:17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Holy Spirit, which is the word of God. Hebrews 4:12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So how many more people would have had to die in Israel if Phineas didn't do this? So by killing the people that are responsible for some of this brazen aggression, he actually saves probably thousands of people in the nation. How many people are going to get punished because believers said and did nothing? And how many people are going to be parted from God at the end of days, instead of brought close to God, because we were too scared of hurting people. Because the word of God's a sword. You tell people they're in sin, that hurts people, and it makes them angry. But then you also have this other nice message of God loves you, and he wants you to be pure and to come closer to him. So, yeah, for me, this is convicting. Like, you get to be older, and you think of how many people in your life you didn't say something to when you knew you should have. And then, of course, you get to be like an old cranky man. You just don't care what anybody thinks, and you can be ungraceful in how you talk to people. And there's this beautiful balance that most godly people find, where they can be graceful with people and at the same time say there is this thing called purity that God wants you to seek and strive for. Verse 10. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel." because he was zealous with my zeal among them, so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. Phineas is then an absolute hero in the, in the narrative of, of Israel what's going on. And this is really the only kind of tale we know about this guy. But he's absolutely, little junior steps up. Notice that Eleazar didn't do this, but he did. And he's not just anyone. God starts with this title. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest. So he actually was a person that had some authority. He's not just anybody. He's actually responsible for the purity of Israel. He's a shepherd over that flock. So he's actually supposed to care for people. If he's just anybody, this is an act of murder. If he's representing God's desire for purity, then he's carrying out God's word. It's another really careful balance. There's people get messed up by this stuff, right? Love has to be taken so seriously that sometimes love is to protect and guard and defend. And if somebody's breaking into your house and your whole family's at risk, sometimes love is to protect your family from that person who's breaking in. And when this guy comes up boldly and brazenly to the tabernacle, he's threatening the entire nation of Israel. And there's a plague that's happening because of it. So he takes love seriously and he acts on it. God sees that and he rewards the people that are zealous and the people that didn't settle down and relax. So this world is a testing space for how we react to things and how we react to things with passion. Do we sit back and do nothing or do we act and we use the word of God? And it is a two-edged sword. It cuts both us and the people we're talking to. He gives them a covenant of peace, which is wonderful. Instead of being worried about what other people think, this guy gets peace in his life. What a wonderful gift. One zealous act, and this guy leaves a legacy for generations of people. And isn't that how it happens sometimes? People are known by that one defining moment in their life. And we can either have shame in that moment, or we can take pride in it. The everlasting priesthood idea is a interesting one. The kingdom age is going to have priests that come through Phineas, Eleazar, Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood is going to go forward. It's going to go all the way forward to Exodus. Uh, what started in Exodus 40 and 44 with Aaron is going to descend all the way through Zadok, a guy you're going to run into in First Chronicles chapter 6. And it's going to go through all the way until the Israelites are carried off to Babylon. And and then Ezra records that that priesthood is still there, but the records are are kept by the priests in Babylon. And then when they come back to the land, they're still there. In fact, those temple records that record the priesthood are there until AD 70, when the Romans completely destroyed all Jewish records of genealogy and, and records. So in that sense, this priest that would last forever had to have shown up before AD 70, because the records are gone at that point, unless God's keeping track of some other kinds of records. Um, this isn't a zeal that Phineas has for a golden cow. He doesn't have a zeal for strange incense like Aaron's other kids. He has a zeal for God, and he loves the Lord. So this is kind of a, a renewal period that's going to happen there. Um, I think this is interesting because when you see this everlasting priesthood idea, I'm going to read you another passage this one's from Jeremiah 33. It's prophetic around this throne that'll exist and who's going to sit on it. Jeremiah 33 verse 17 says, for thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings and sacrifice continually. So in AD 70, when those records are gone, theoretically the Jewish people would have to mourn because they get neither a king nor a priest that will fulfill the everlasting priesthood. Unless, of course, that person showed up that actually beat death and was going to live eternally, that took the throne of the king and the robes of the priesthood all in the same act, which Christians believe is Jesus. So we see those promises all the way back here in Numbers. Verse 14, I'm going to move through here. Now, the name of the Israelite who was killed, it's interesting we didn't get the names before, but now we do who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Selu, a leader of a father's house among the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, uh, not the comedian from the 80s. (laughs) Cosby in the Hebrew means deceiver. So probably a name that the Israelites gave to her. Uh, The daughter of Zer, he was the head of the people of a father's house in Midian. So God names the good people, and now he names the evil people. God doesn't hide their names for privacy's sake. He makes it public and puts it into his eternal word of God. The fact that these are leaders made it even worse. As a leader, these are people that were supposed to care for the people of God, and instead they're brazenly trying to bring the people of God down. Either way, God names names. Verse 16, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and attack them. For they harassed you with their schemes by which they seduced you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of a leader of Midian, their sister who was killed in the day of the plague because of Peor. So there's a leader and another leader and an important person. The Exodus generation is going away uh, and Moses is commanded to attack and harass because they were attacked and harassed. And we've seen this kind of reciprocation happen before. God's brought the people of God to the gates of the promised land before. I'm going to kind of, we're at the last kind of segment of Numbers here. We're getting there. We've seen a lot in Numbers about how the walk of the people of God should go. And there's been tons of lessons. And for those of you that have been here through Numbers, I just want to go back through those lessons with single words. The first lesson we saw was that fear gets in the way of being in the promised land. And people of God can be struck by fear and it cripples you, and it makes it so you don't get in there. Then they try to attack by force, and being forceful to get your way is another thing that gets them repelled and sent with equal force in the opposite direction. And the people of God can get lost trying to force their will on other people. Number three, they get to detours. They wander through the wilderness, so lots of detours, and they just lose their way and become aimless, and Christians can do that too. Then they get into conflicts with people and they don't resolve those conflicts the right way. And conflict can get in the way of bringing people into the uh, the kingdom of God. And then number five, they get into spiritual battles. And we saw that for the last three chapters, right? And spiritual battles are kind of okay, because God fights them, and the Israelites don't even know it. They're literally not part of the story while that's happening. That's pretty amazing. And then we see this settling in thing happen in this chapter. They just get comfortable. And the people of God lack that access to God's promises, because they got too comfortable. And they weren't pursuing God with zeal, which seems to be the main idea in this chapter. You see the trajectory or the pattern there? Fear, force, detours, conflicts, spiritual battles, kind of a good thing. And then settling in, and then lust for the world. And this lust for what Baal Peor has to offer. Like what they had to offer is better than what God has in store for them. They worship idols. And that's the walk of faith so far in the book of Numbers. So where Leviticus shows us how to worship God, Numbers shows us how to fail God in numerous ways. I I had to go there. I started to ask myself, where does God lead in my life? Does God lead my life or does my 401k lead my life? Does God lead my life or does sneaking away to get me time lead my life? Does God lead my life or does sleep lead my life or work lead my life or money or pride or claims to titles, all those things. What do I pursue when I get time off? Where do I go? Where is my worship? Because that's my idol, whatever it is. And it either can be a true worship where you pursue God in that relationship with God, or it can be a fake worship where you pursue anything else on this planet. And that's a dangerous thing because non-Christians are like, so what, you don't do this or you don't do that and you don't do this? And it's like, no, I do God. And it replaces those things. It's not that I can't do those things. Paul said we can do all things, right, in moderation, right? God forgives if we need to, but the point is we should be pursuing God with everything we have. And the Israelites, it's kind of a downer of a chapter. They just fail here, right? And we see one hero stand up and have some zeal, and he pursues God with zeal, and God acknowledges this person, and thousands of people die. So then we get to Numbers 26. I'm going to move through this chapter. You see how long it is? That's because we are to Numbers part two, the second census. So this is where y'all get to laugh at how I pronounce names. Um, This is kind of the end of this section. Chapters one through nine of Numbers were the preparation of the people. 10 through 25 were the wanderings of the people. And now we get to the end of the book. So we're going to wrap things up in the next few chapters, but we'll do one of them tonight. And it came to pass after the plague, That the Lord spoke to Moses and Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel from 20 years old and above by their father's houses, all who are able to go to war in Israel. So we're going to get ready to do some battle. So Moses and Eleazar, the priest, spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Take a census of the people from 20 years old and above, just as the Lord commanded Moses and the children of Israel, who came out of the land of Egypt. So 30 years ago, 40 years ago, I'm sorry, they took a census of all the people and they had X number of people. And now God's saying, okay, time to take another census. We must be ready to move into the promised land. There's only one person that we know of that's still left, and that's Moses. So Moses has still got to die. And we'll get to that in a couple chapters. So we have a, let me say this too you know you're in for real, like you're a real Bible study person if you come to somebody's house on a Sunday night to read through a census. Honestly, props to all of you. You're way ahead of where I was. Uh, I just, honestly, that is so amazing. This is your first time. You must be a Bible like geek because we're going to study a census tonight. So I just think that's kind of neat. So Eleazar gets named here. That's great. Very different than Nadab and Abihu. Um, we're going to start with the tribe of Reuben because he's the firstborn of Israel. Verse 5, the, the, Reuben was the firstborn of Israel. The children of Reuben were Hanok, the family of the Hanakites, Palu, the family of the Paluites, and Hezron, the family of the Hezronites. You see a pattern here? Of Karni, the family of the Carmites, Very good at making candy. These are the families of the Reubenites. Those who were numbered of them were 43,750. I'm going to tell you the change from the first census So this was my geekiness. This is a negative 6% in that tribe. There's less Reubenites than there were before. Yes, I did some math. And the son of Palu, who was Eliab, and the sons of Eliab were Nemuel, Dathan, and Abraham. These are the Dathan and Abraham representatives of the congregation who contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah. And when they contended against the Lord, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah and the company that died when the fire devoured 250 men and they became a sign. That's interesting. Uh, in the Hebrew, that's next, something that's lifted up, that word sign. It's the exact same word that got used back in Numbers 21 for the bronze pole that was, remember the bronze pole on which there was a serpent set? Is that your allergies? Slightly. Grant, you want to get her an uh, alivert? <laughs> Grant's got you hooked up. Because this isn't a sad part of the Bible. So I'm thinking either Alyssa's (laughs) feeling convicted (laughs) here or Or it's the Carmites joke. It wasn't that bad of a joke. (laughs) So these men get to become a sign the same as the bronze pole that the serpent was set upon. So they become a sign. Uh, We won't see that word sign again, that banner, that flag, that thing that gets lifted up. Until Psalm 60, so hold on to that word. You're not going to see it again in the Bible for a very long time, like five years. Psalm 60, verse 4, and Isaiah 5, verse 26, they're both used in prophecy uh, in in reference to something that will signify the Messiah. It's kind of cool. So names are not listed in chapter one. Eliezer is the head. Here, the leadership of the families has changed. All the names have changed. I'm not going to go through and read the meanings of each of the names. It's just too much. Um, they contended against Moses and Aaron. That was back in chapter Numbers 16. If you want to write that cross-reference in, you can write in Numbers 16 ne- next to that and read the story. Nevertheless, the children of Korah did not die. Remember, we talked about this. I think that we were in the devils when we got to this one, weren't we? There were the people that the the Korathites that died, and we asked, "Well, what happened to the kids?" And here we find out the kids did not die. So it must be that there were these other Israelites that just took these kids in and gave them better homes, right? Because these were all people that were in defiance, and now they get to be with people that are in, at peace with Moses and God's law. So those children are still there. The inheritance is still there. And someone had to step in to raise these kids. So we've got hundreds of nameless heroes in Israel that just took orphan kids under their wing and raised them up. Isn't that cool? And you just see that in verse 11, just this offhanded little comment. So we know that the Korathites aren't, this isn't the end of their story either. Those awesome parents that took in these orphan kids, the Korathites are going to be some of the most amazing musicians in the Bible. First Chronicles chapter six, they're going to write Psalms that contribute to God's word. And we're going to see that part of God's word is written by these kids that grow up and have been been trained, and then in uh, and then one of those kids is going to be named Samuel, and will actually become a prophet of God. First Chronicles chapter six, verse twenty-two. Uh, Samuel's a, a child of Korah; he's one of the Korathites. So these kids that got saved—it's amazing how God cares about the children and will actually use them in His plan, even though their parents were a bunch of knuckleheads. So praise be to kids that have knucklehead parents and still find their way to God. Verse 12, the sons of Simeon, according to their families, were of Nemuel, the family of the Nemuelites, Jamin, the fam- family of the Jaminites, Jakin, the family of the Jacobites, and Zerah, the family of Zerahites, and Shaul, the family of the Shaulites. They're the clothing manufacturers. These are the families of the Simeonites, 22,200. They have a massive loss, these Simeonites, 63%. So their size has shrunk considerably. They're the chief offenders of the Baal Poyor stuff. Because if you figure out where everybody else sent, the Baal Poyor people were the Simeonites. So it must be that the ladies came down at that point in the camp where they were camping, and they were the ones that were most affected by this. Verse 15, the sons of Gad, according to their families, were Zephon. I love the name Zephon. I wanted to name Grant Zephon, but Steph said no. The family of the Zephonites... Haggai, the family of the Hagites; Shuni, the family of the Shunites, Osni, the family of the Osnites, and Eri, the family of the Erites, and Erod, the family of the Erites, Erodites, uh, they're very smart, of Arieli, the family of Erolites, and these are the families of the sons of Gad, according to those who are numbered among them, 40,500, negative 11%. All of the south side of the camp saw a negative hit that entire wing of the camp just shrunk. So the camp that was in a plus sign is changing shape slightly. It's awesome. Eastern tribes, the sons of Judah were Ur and Onan, and Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. Uh, Genesis 32, God killed both of these people. Uh, Verse 20, and the sons of Judah, according to their families, were Shelah, the family of the Shelanites, Perez, the family of the Parzites, Zerah, the family of the Zarhites, and the sons of Perez were Hezron, and the family of the Hezronites, of Hamu, the family of the Hamulites, And these were the families of Judah, according to those who were numbered among them, 76,500 plus 3%. They're still the largest group, and they lead the camp, the sons of Judah. So Judah gains in prominence. It's the only real line here that does. Um, The only... uh, the line that gets developed in this particular passage uh, is important. All these families. Two thoughts. One, do you see how God's looking at families now instead of leaders? He's looking more at groups instead of individuals. I think that's kind of interesting. Uh, the word Perez sounds familiar because uh, we saw that back in uh, at Genesis 38. That's the family that kind of came out of Tamar, and and she posed as a prostitute and. Remember this story? So that's that line. They're still around. First Chronicles 2 leads this kind of sto- this King David story. Uh, God adds mercy and uses this kind of clan to bless the whole world. The sons of Issachar, according to their families, were Tola, family of the Tolites. They like to go to the bathroom. Of Pua, the family of the Punites. Jeshub, the family of the Jashubites. Shimron, the family of the Shimronites. These are the families of Issachar, according to those who were numbered among them, 64,300 plus 18%. This arm is growing. Advanced divisions of troops, they grow on this side. Uh, This is going to be, remember, Judah and this side of the, the cross goes first whenever they march. So God's buffering up the lead unit that goes as they march into battle. There's more people on this side that are going to move into battle. On the west side, uh, Manasseh gets mentioned first, even though it's Ephraim's flag. Couldn't tell you why that's the case. If anybody has a thought on it, you can, but there's a slight shift here in, in who gets named first. The sons of Joseph and their families by Manasseh and Ephraim were uh, the sons of Manasseh, of Macher, the family of the Macherites. Uh, Macher begot Gilead of Gilead and the family of the Gileadites. And these are the sons of Gilead of Jezer and the family of Jezerites. And Helek, the family of the Helekites. Um, I won't make that. And Ezreal, the family of the Israelites of Shechem and the family of the Shechemites and Shemida, the family of the Shemidielites, of the heifer and the family of the heiferites. Those were the milk loving people. And now Zelophead, the son of heifer had no sons, but daughters. And the names of the daughters of Zelophiad were Mala, Noah, Hogla. What a bad name for a young lady. Hogla, Hogla. Milcah and Terza. These are the families of Manasseh who are, who are now numbered among them 52,700. Again, they have a huge gain, 64% gain. They're now the biggest of the tribes. So they've gone from the smallest to the biggest. There's only one son here. Gilead had six sons. Verse 33, Zelo has no sons. And that's going to be a story in chapter 27. You're going to have these young ladies that come and demand their rights and, and Moses is going to give it to them. These are the sons of Ephraim, according to the families of Shethullah and the family of the Shethullahites, and Beker, the family of the Bacharites and Tahan, the family of Tanites, 36. And these are the sons of Shuthullah, of Aaron, and the family of the Aaronites. These are the families of the sons of Ephraim, this, according to those who are numbered among them, 32,500. These are the sons of Joseph, according to their families, negative 20%. Genesis 48:19, Ephraim would be greater than Manasseh, but Ephraim is not yet greater than Manasseh. So there's a promise from Genesis that according to this census is not true. It will be fulfilled if you want a spoiler in Deuteronomy 33, verse 17. So this is going to be, uh, yeah, we'll keep going. Verse 38, sons of Benjamin, according to their families were Bella, the family of the Belalites, Bellaites. Of Ashbel, the family of the Ashbelites; Of Ahiram, the family of the Ahiramites. Shufam, the family of the Shufamites. They make good footwear. Of Hufam, the family of the Hufamites. Also make good footwear. And the sons of Bella were Ard and Naaman. And Ard and the family of the Ardites. Naaman, the family of the Naamanites. Naamites. These are the sons of Benjamin, according to their family. And those who were numbered among them were 45,600 plus 29%. Genesis 46, only five of the 10 sons are gone. There's whole families here just gone that are not accounted for. So that's one thing to note here. So this is a tribe that might've got lost in some of these situations with the fiery serpents, with the, uh, with the Moabite women coming down, and there's just a number of people that died. Uh, apparently some of those people got taken out of this tribe because there's entire family units that are gone that used to be in the old census. Make sense? these are things that we're supposed to notice because it's good Jewish learners. We're tuning into both these censuses. And this is what they had to study in eighth grade. We have to learn the states and capitals, but this is what they would have studied. On the north side, verse 42, these are the sons of Dan, according to their families of Shum, the family of the Shuamites. Again, good footwear. And these are the families of Dan, according to their families, all the families of the Shuamites according to those who are numbered among them, 64,403%. And there's only one family, even though they gained 3% with only one family in that whole tribe. The sons of Asher, according to their families, were Gimna and the family of the Jimnites, first people to do Fayad class. Of Jesuai, the family of the Jesuites. There are people that think the Catholic Jes- Jesuites came out of this passage. I think that's ridiculous, um, but they believe there's some people that think that this is where that came from, and that these people were really good scholars. There's no biblical evidence of that at all. It's just kind of a Catholic tradition. Just if there's any Catholics in the room, just so you know that. Uh, of Berii and the Beraites, they liked fruit. Of the sons of Berii and the Hebrew, the family of the Heborites. And Malkiel and the family of the Malkielites, they loved little green rocks. And the name of the daughter of Asher was Sarah. And these are the families of the sons of Asher, according to those who are numbered among them, 53,400. That's plus 29%. Uh, There's no reason given anywhere of why we see Sarah noted in this passage. So I think when we get to heaven, we'll find out that there's something significant with this character, but there's no other mention of her in the Bible anywhere. She's just mentioned here for no reason, and we don't know why. So this is kind of a curious little passage. Verse 48. And very disappointing when you're the geek trying to get this ready for Bible study in two weeks, and then you come across one and you're like, oh, who's Sarah? Sarah and you go looking her up and you try to find her and your answer is nothing. And there's just nothing there. So I'll keep reading. Verse 48, the sons of Naphtali, according to their families, were Jaziel, the family of the Jazielites, of Guni, the family of the Gunites. Uh, no, I'm not going to make that joke either. <laughs> I, I was going to say they were good target shooters just for grant. And, but I pronounced it wrong. 49, Jezer, the family of the Jezerites. Shilam, the family of the Shilamites. And these are the families of Naphtali, according to their families. And those who were numbered among them were 45,400. That's 15,000 less or 8,000 people. Uh, The front and rear guards are still the largest and the longest of the rows, but the two other sides have shrunk, making the camp of Israel look even more like a cross. So it's kind of interesting how this happens. Um, these are, these are those who were numbered of the children of Israel. Here's the grand total, 601,730. You should note that this is a miracle. And when you read this, you should read an absolute and total miracle. 40 years, the people normally grow exponentially over time. This is only a difference of 1,800 people amongst maybe 2 million, because we're only counting the 20 year old and up men here. This is a total miracle. It's a difference of 0.3%. So, 40 years in the wilderness, God's people are here ready to go in. They're fearful, and God says, Okay, you're going to get 40 years to wander in the wilderness. They come back around 40 years later with virtually the same number of people ready to go in the Holy Land. It's absolutely incredible. And you think that they have physically stagnated and their population is stagnated and they have spiritually stagnated. And that's the story of numbers. This is how we can kind of get lost in the wilderness. All the beauty of one through nine teaches us how to prepare for a walk with Christ, walk with God. And then you get all these ways in which you can just stagnate in your faith. And this is what's going on. So you get back to those things, fear, aggression, conflict. Um, Sexual immorality, these are things that stagnate your spiritual life and they kill your growth. And they killed the growth for Israel too. In a miraculous way, two million people have virtually no population growth. And it's not because of food, because they're getting manna every day. And even if manna tastes like oatmeal and not so good, it still sustains you and sticks to your stomach halfway through the day. Oatmeal is very good for you, honey, even though it doesn't taste good. so they look forward in the next verses. Even though they've stagnated, God's still looking forward. Verse 52, God speaks to Moses saying, to these the land shall be divided as an inheritance according to the number of names. So to a large tribe, you give larger inheritance. To a small tribe, you give smaller inheritance. And each shall be given as inheritance according to those who were numbered of them. But the land shall be divided by lot And they shall inherit according to the names of the tribes of their fathers, according to the lot of the inheritance shall be divided between the smaller and the larger. For those of you that don't have a legal mind, that means we're going to add up all the families and there's going to be one lot for each family. And then they're going to draw the land by lots. So there's going to be an element of luck and there's going to be an element of kind of fairness and that the bigger, the people with more people are going to get more land. And then God's going to decide what that land is because they're going to draw by lots. Make sense? So God's adjusting the sizes. He's blessing some tribes, not blessing others. Again, we see Israel is organized. They're not all willy-nilly everywhere. There's an organization and a system to it all. Uh, their locations going to be de- de- determined by faith. Essentially, they're going to say, I'll go where you put me, Lord, when they draw these things. Um, and they're going to go wherever they're sent, and they're going to love it a lot. God gets to choose actual locations and put them there. This is also, in part, when you randomly draw names out of a hat, and some people get this and some people get that, this is the root word for lottery. And this is where we get that word from. So you're going to get your land by lottery. And it's also the root for allotment. So it's how God determines where lands go. And I always like to know where words come from. Verse 57, And these are those who were numbered of the Levites, according to their families of Gershon, the family of the Gershonites, of Kohath, the family of the Kohathites, of Merari, good car makers, the family of the Merarites. These are the families of the Levites, the family of the Libanites, the family of the Hebronites, the family of the Mahalites, the family of the Mushites, they like to go dog sledding, and the family of the Korathites, and Kohath begot Amram, and the name of Amram's wife was Jochebed. Um, This is his aunt, by the way, the daughter of Levi who was born to Levi in Egypt. And to Amram, she bore Aaron and Moses and their sister Miriam. To Aaron were born both Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And Nadab and Abihu died when they offered profane fire before the Lord. Notice that Moses's kids are not mentioned. Isn't that kind of interesting? Aaron's kids are because there's a lineage of the priesthood, but Moses is not a king in Israel. And there's nothing here that would imply that his kids are going to take over leadership. That's phenomenal given the ancient world doesn't work that way. So this is either like a huge mistake in ancient writing or Moses intentionally is choosing to not be a king and not take over this country. So I don't think there's a, I don't think it's by chance. I think Moses did that that intentionally. Um, Technically the Levite gets no key distinctions here because they're not getting any land. Um, So it doesn't matter how many people are there. Pointing out the awkward lineage of somebody's aunt is also an odd thing to point out. Uh, It lets God get the glory for this family of priests that come from an awkward situation in their family history. Again, one's family history does not predetermine what God's going to do with people. And I think that's hopeful. I think that's good. If you have family lineage, that's something to be ashamed of. That doesn't mean God's not going to use you in eternally awesome ways. And I think that's really hopeful. For Aaron, they point out that there are two sons, again, awkward. These two sons are offering profane fire before the Lord. They get killed by the Lord, if you remember that story. God doesn't erase the mess. He just blesses the family because of the people that have zeal in that family too. Because of Aaron, because Eleazar, uh, because of Phineas that we saw in the last chapter. Now, those who were numbered among them were 23,000, every male from a month old and above. Again, this isn't about battle because the Levites don't go to battle. It's a month old because... After one month, they're considered priesthood and they're Levites. The training of, in the spiritual priesthood starts when they're one month old. Think of that. Think of how important parenting is, especially for a tribe where you're going to be the leader of God's people. So at one month old, they are taught, no, you can't eat that. And that's, I think, an interesting thing. Or they're taught what they should do and how to celebrate, but they're, they're counted from one month old and above. For they were not numbered among the other children of Israel, because there is no inheritance given to them among the children of Israel. The Levites grow by a thousand people. So they're actually growing. Their much greater inheritance is going to be something bigger than the land. They're going to get a center point in each of the tribes. So they'll get a Levite city in each of the tribal areas. And the Levites will be spread out through the land to serve as priests. And they're going to be given God's company, uh, Numbers 18, 20 that's their inheritance is they get to hang out with God and be blessed by God. Verse 63. These are those who were numbered by Moses and Eleazar the priest who numbered the children of Israel on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Jericho seems to be mentioned twice now. Seems to be an important city. Like there's something that's going to happen in Jericho that's a big deal because it's it's like a can you already see that it's like a turning point space? and they're mentioning it ahead, like it means something. Uh, But if you're just reading straight through the Bible, it's just a town at this point. But among these, there was not a man who, of those who were numbered by Moses and Aaron, the priest, when they numbered the children of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. Not a man is still there that was there when they numbered the last time. So of the two censuses, there's not a man that's been numbered. Note that Moses has not been numbered because he's a Levite. Because some people would say, well, that's an error in the Bible because Moses is still there and he was there at the other census, but he's a Levite. He was not numbered in a sense because he doesn't get inheritance in the land. Just a thought. But among these, there was not a man who was not there, who was numbered by Moses and Aaron, the priest, when they numbered the children of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. The other way you interpret that is, well, Moses did the counting. He wasn't the counted. Uh-huh. So anyways, verse 65, for the Lord had said of them, they shall surely die in the wilderness So there was not a man of them except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. The entire faithless generation is gone, except two people. And if you remember, Caleb and Joshua were the two spies that went out to spy the land, and they came back and they were not chicken. And they were ready to go do what God told them to do. Numbers 13, if you want your reference. Same people, same physical people. Now they have a new spiritual fidelity to God, to God's law. Some of the tribes grew stronger. Some of them grew weaker in this journey. And God says what will happen. And it happens, which is, I'll leave with this thought, God is totally reliable. Because if he can navigate 2 million people for 40 years and come to the same exact spot, that's pretty amazing. And when God says those people are going to die in the wilderness, to a person, they died in the wilderness. And I think that's why Moses is making this point at the end of the chapter. This is a really big deal. God actually kept His promise, and for us, we're like, sure, no big deal, because we see an entire Bible where God keeps His promises. But to Moses and the people of God, yeah, God's powerful; He got him out of Egypt. He's miraculous; He gives him manna. But He also keeps His promises. Compare that to any of the Egyptian gods, if you want to go research Egyptian gods. These gods don't keep their promises. They're they're willy nilly. They're all over the place. The Roman gods, the Greek gods, the Babylonian gods, Baal of Peor. These are gods that go on every women fancy that serves them. But this is a God who keeps his promises through 40 years in the wilderness. This is a very different kind of God. Like a God that people didn't invent, but a God that people should serve and honor and glorify because he's just better than people. And I think that's kind of awesome as you end this up. And of course, there's lots to talk about with Baal of Poyor stuff, but let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, thank you for your holy word. Lord, a lot of times we hit these chapters, Lord, where we get through them just out of diligence. You know why, Lord? Because we love you. And we want to know every word that you have to say to us. Um, Lord, I pray that the the word tonight in these two chapters speaks to our hearts. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that's just touched by it, Lord, that they'll um, let it stick and let it stick with them. Uh, If there's anything in these chapters, Lord, that we need to hear, may we hear it. May our ears be opened. Uh, Lord, if there's things as we go into our week that we need to see more clearly because of these chapters, help us to see it more clearly. Lord, we just want to absorb what you have to say because we love you and we care about you and we celebrate you and lift you up above all things. May you get the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.